Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me for the 22nd episode of my new podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is, or else, the use and abuse of threats. With me is David Barish, the author of Threats, Intimidation, and Its Discontents. The publisher is Oxford University Press. David is a research scientist and author who has spent 43 years as a professor of psychology at the University of Washington. He's written over 240 peer-reviewed scientific papers, written or co-written 41 books, and received a ton of awards, including being named a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. David, welcome to the show. Hi, Dan. It's my pleasure to be with you. Wonderful. Looking forward to a good conversation. So to begin, just give us a a bit of an overview of what Threats is about. Well, um, the idea here is to examine the phenomenon of threats from a variety of perspectives. And I think it's worth looking right off at what do we mean by threats? Or what what do I mean by threats? Now, there, there are two basic kinds of threats, I suppose. One is uh, threats that come from the outside, like asteroid impacts or super volcanoes or even uh, a pandemic, for instance. Now, those are very real threats, but that actually is not the topic of my book. What I'm talking about is the other component of threats, which are attempts to influence others, um, saying, you know, or else, if you will, you do this or else, or it might be don't do this or else. But either way, the threats that I'm looking at are attempts to intimidate and manipulate others. Um, and that's that's the basic idea. And in doing so, I go from animals to people to um, c- countries as a whole. Okay. And I'm going to kind of follow that uh, progression. I'm going to start a little bit more on the animal side. Uh, we're going to spend a good deal of time talking about Donald Trump, uh, but then I do want to move on to to country and to the world a bit. So there seems to be a really important statement early in the book. You say, evolution is not concerned with morality, right and wrong, but with what does and doesn't work. So in the first part of the book, you catalog a number of ways in which animals try to look bigger, more threatening, more intimidating, uh, you know, to ward off predators. Are there any patterns that you want to bring our attention to as listeners, you know, certain things that maybe work best or that you found as intriguing examples? Well, I have to say, as someone who was trained as a biologist, I find all examples of animal behavior intriguing. And frankly, those involving threats are particularly so. And I guess I'd emphasize to the listeners that, first of all, Threats are much more widespread in the animal world than we realize. Animals can convey threats just by their coloration, for instance. 
by the sounds they make. And we're accustomed to that in the way of sort of lions roaring or something or dogs growling. Uh, but even when birds sing, it's often a threat saying, this is my territory, don't come in. Um, also, I, I guess with regard to animal communication, and frankly, to some extent, human as, as well, which I imagine we'll get to, one thing that I find particularly intriguing is the question of honesty versus dishonesty in communication generally, and particularly with threats. It's very tempting for evolution to promote an animal who conveys a threat, um, but as a result of that, it can be equally tempting to convey a threat that is essentially an empty threat. And so living things do a lot of bluffing. Um, and to some extent, we, we know that. I mean, a cat may try to make itself look bigger and hiss and, and uh, you know, hair uh, on end and all that, hair standing on end. Um, but there are all sorts of other cases in which animal threats really don't even, uh, aren't obvious to humans, but they're almost always obvious to other animals. Um, and in fact, as uh, evolutionary biologists now realize, um, there really is relatively little payoff. And this is a little bit troublesome for people. Um, there's relatively little payoff in telling the truth um, because the real goal of evolution is to promote the genes of the animals or plants in question. And so the payoff is not one of telling the truth or not, but rather getting your way. And threats are often an important way of getting your way, uh, except if your bluff gets called. And so there's a lot of threatening and counter-threatening and trying to find out if the other guy really means it in the animal world. And how often do those bluffs work out? How often do they boomerang back on, on some species? Yeah, well, fairly often, actually. <laughs> uh, and so, um, But I would say when it comes to boomeranging back, as, as you so well put it, um, the animal for whom that happens more than any is a peculiar species known as Homo sapiens. Um, <laughs> you know, when, when evolution operates, it, it works over time in a, in a rather, what almost seems to the human observer is a rational way. Most animals won't do a lot of threatening if it's going to do them more harm than good. Uh, Whereas human threats are something that we've developed really quite recently under the strong influence of uh, culture, and evolution hasn't had a lot of opportunity to operate on that. And so unlike so many animals, we homo sapiens issue threats, and they often work, of course, but altogether too often they do boomerang, and we wind up doing ourselves more harm than good by the uh, issuing of threats and the responses to threats. And I guess uh, my book is, the, the first part dealing with animals, I think, is more, at least I hope, is more informative and entertaining. There are lots of wonderful examples of animals engaging in threatening behavior and how that works. Um, the rest of the book, the remaining maybe two-thirds, really talks about humans. And in that case, it's... Uh, a lot darker because unfortunately when humans get into the threatening mode and the response there too, all too often we really screw up. Sure. Well, I, I really enjoyed and thought the examples were fascinating in the opening section on the natural world. 
uh, perhaps in part because some years ago I was on a non-hunting safari in Botswana. And it was so striking as you just were out there without distractions and observing, you know, how they went about their, their lives and trying to avoid death. Just the stress they were under. Daytime was already filled with predators and nighttime you couldn't see the predators coming. Uh, it just seemed to me a, a, a supreme opportunity to stress out as an animal. I, I was amazed they can they can do as well as I guess they do. Um, one of the things I thought was interesting is you mentioned that some of the animals will deliberately taste bad. They will be poisonous so that someone doesn't want to tangle with them or eat them alive and so forth. That brings me to the human side because I'm thinking about Donald Trump, quite honestly. You made a few references to him in the natural world, but I was already thinking about him even before you got there because he exaggerates his height for one thing. And then I found myself starting to think about Roy Cohn because Roy Cohn was an advisor, an early advisor, mentor to Donald Trump, of course, famous for the McCarthy hearings uh, where he worked with Joseph McCarthy. And he proved to be a, a real guiding light for Donald Trump. I'm not sure if I should use the word light or not, but I, I shall. Uh, and here are three three of his. Uh, I guess I would, of, call him, I, I would call him maybe a guiding dark. Yeah, guiding dark well. is a little, a little closer <laughs> to the truth. Yeah. Um, I, I grant you that readily. Um, here are three little chestnuts, as it were, from Roy Cohn and things that he suggested to Donald Trump. I'd be curious to uh, see your take on any of them and how they kind of tie into both the natural world and to, of course, human nature. Uh, one of them, as he said, never apologize. Another one, he said, if you get hit, hit back twice as hard. And another one he said was, uh, if you say it loudly enough and aggressively enough, it becomes the truth. Any any comments on those three? I guess my first comment is, ain't it the truth, at least in terms of the way Mr. Trump has behaved, both before he was in office and now? Um, you know, he has been a sort of a guiding dark. He, Roy Cohen, really has been a guiding dark for Trump. Um, the, the issue of exaggerating whatever you're saying or doing um, is a very important one in the world of threats. Uh, in fact, that there's a whole phenomenon that national security people talk about known as threat inflation, which is often a way of exaggerating, well, it's an example of exaggerating what another country is doing so as to get your people to do yet more. Um, and I think the, the, the phenomenon of lying, again, which is something that Cohen was certainly an expert in and, and emphasized the value of, and that Trump seems to do as readily as he, as he breathes, um, is another, yet another example of threat behavior that, well, at this point, it, up to some degree, it's, it's worked for him uh, insofar as he became president. Um, and I think, and, and one of the things that I discuss at some length is the phenomenon of, of uh, right-wing populism and how for many Americans and many others around the world uh, who feel threatened by one thing or another, feel threatened by the local, the immediate economy, feel threatened by the way society is orchestrated, um, the notion of looking for a savior, someone who, by virtue of being like Roy Cohen described, if you get hit, you hit back even harder, uh, exaggerate anything and just keep saying it and people will believe it. If you exaggerate as Trump has done, the, only I can fix it, right? He is the solution, the Messiah. Um, to people who feel threatened, 
he became a, uh, a potential savior. At least that's how, how so many perceived him. And yet, uh, I uh, unfortunately, for the country and for those who supported him, and some of many of whom, unfortunately, I think still do, um, this is a classic example of how responding to threats by engaging in vigorous, aggressive behavior often is counterproductive because ironically people in the many people in the red states um have suffered more from trump than those in the blue states if you will uh, those who looked for him as a solution to the, the degree of threat they felt are winding up worse off than they had been before and that regrettably is a, a kind of an a, a, a metaphor for how often our responding to threats has uh, has been horribly counterproductive and very dangerous sure they, well you know again there were so many details in the section on the animals we talked about you know they will engage in violence to you know be intimidating they will engage in bluffing they will be bad tasting they will engage in self-promotion through dramatic color schemes to further their genes they will engage in camouflage Every one of those, I could see a Trump correlate as I think about, uh, you know, exaggerating his height, the height of his buildings, uh, amount of wealth, uh, the degree to which he can bring solutions. I mean, it really goes on and on. But I let's try to narrow down to a few details here that are already interesting. Some really striking comments. You said bullies reveal their inner coward. So we can apply that to Trump or you can go beyond Trump. But I'm interested in the degree to which bullies reveal their inner coward? Yeah, I think, um, well, if you have to look, I, it would be helpful then to back off and look at what is a bully? How are they behaving and, and why? And uh, uh, to some extent, we all have an intuitive sense of what is a bully. Well, of course, they're, they're individuals who um, try to push others around and they use threats in order to do so. Um, the problem with being a bully other than the, if you apply ethical standards to it, and certainly there's a problem there. It's unfair, inappropriate by most ethical considerations to be a bully, to bully someone, to push someone else around. But there's also a practical problem at the level of the bully herself or himself, and mostly it's him, but not only. Um, and that's the problem of having your bluff called. Um, again, aside from the ethical considerations. And so... When people rely on bullying, if they do so to a small extent, if the actual frequency of bullies is low, and we 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 find this interestingly, Dan, in the in the animal world in a, a number of cases, if the frequency of bullies is low, they actually wind up often doing well. Um, but if the number of bullies increases, or rather, and then as the number of bullies increases, then it becomes more and more likely that they will be taken to task or at least examined because it's relatively cheap to be a bully, pretend to be a bully, look like you're big and tough, especially if you're imitating someone else who really is big and tough, in which case um, it doesn't pay to the other animals in, mo in many cases to question your legitimacy. Um, but as the number, because there are more real, real tough guys around than you, individuals who are inflating their actual capabilities or even their inclinations, but then interestingly, and there's a fascinating models using mathematics, and I've done 
some of that, but not, uh, others have done a lot more. Um, as the numbers of artificial bullies, if you will, individuals who are pretending to be more fierce, more competent than they really are, as that number increases, um, more and more when individuals do, other, other individuals uh, essentially call the bluff, they discover that the individuals in question really are often bluffing. And as that happens, it becomes uh, more and more troublesome to be a bully because their bluff is called, they're revealed to be the, the showman, the fake, the phony, the liar that they really are. Um, and it's certainly my, it's my belief, and to be quite honest, my hope that that's increasingly happening with Mr. Trump. So we speaking of calling bluffs, there is going to be, of course, in just a few weeks' time, the first debate between uh, Trump and Joe Biden. Uh, what might you – we have, of course, the prologue of the 2016 debates. What would you expect from Trump in this COVID environment? How is he likely to go into the debate? And how do you think Joe Biden's going to fare? Uh, we haven't discussed him yet. Well, um, I think the, 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 the likely way in which – Trump will respond is, uh, frankly, the, the Roy Cohn adv advice that you already <laughs> so well stated. He's going to lie. He's going to exaggerate whatever he feels that he can get away with. And frankly, even things that he feels that, that he can't get away with. Um, he's been remarkable and almost, almost admirable in his his cojones, if you will. I mean, his willingness and inclination to lie even about things that are obviously lies, like how large was his uh, his crowd at the inauguration compared to that of President Obama's, where you could actually look at the look at the data. Um, and so I have no doubt that he'll lie, and he'll lie over and over again, and he'll do it loudly, all following Roy Cohn's advice. And whether that will serve him well um, remains to be seen. I I hope it won't. I I would hope that. As in the animal world, when there are more and more bullies, more and more liars, that rebounds to the the detriment of those who are lying and being bullies. Now, in Trump's case, he's been doing it all by himself. Um, but he, it, so it's just one individual, largely. But he's been doing it over and over and over again. So it's almost as though it's almost analogous to having many individuals who are pretending to be more fierce than they really are in the animal world. And so I'd like to think, and I think there is some increasing possibility that people are getting wise to him, sort of equivalent to animals getting wise to the fact that, hey, lots of these bullies are just full of hot air. And um, so we, you have this one individual who's uttered something more than 20,000 lies, according to the Washington Post. Um, so I th I'd like to think, and I think it is at least possible that as he keeps lying and yelling and bullying, Americans, American voters, will come to respond more or less as so many animals in the animal world do when the number of bullies increases beyond a certain point such that they can't get away with it anymore. Um, I'd like to think that the amount, the number of his lies and exaggerations will have increased to the point that he can't get away with it anymore. But... We'll have to wait and see. Okay. Well, let, let's move the scope beyond Trump in a manner of speaking, because you have another interesting comment in the book. You said uh, increasingly perhaps the Democratic Party is viewed as, quote unquote, the mommy party. 
and the Republicans as the daddy party. Do you want to unpack that for us? What What do you mean by those that analogy? Yeah, I I think that uh, it's a really it's a an, an intriguing concept. It was actually developed, to my knowledge. Well, I think this is this this idea has been around for a while. There's a uh, psychologist named Hector Garcia, who uh, wrote a whole book about it, and I I can't remember the name of his book at this point. But um, the the basic idea is this: the Republicans have long had a reputation of being the tough guys. You know, we see it now with with the law and order business, uh, making sure people don't get away with whether whether it's uh, uh, breaking the law in one way or another, or getting money from the government and not somehow being entitled to it, um, so that the the Republicans have a long history of, of uh, at least presenting themselves as the tough guys, and that equates in many ways to the daddy. And Democrats have a long long reputation of being kind of the nice guys, the ones who are more nurturing, more concerned about education, more concerned about health care for all more concerned about protecting and defending the environment. Now, where this becomes relevant, I think, to the issue of threats is that once again, for a country, or at least many individuals within the country who feel under threat for a variety of reasons, insofar as they, at least in the past, have perceived the Republicans as the daddy party, there's a long history of um, animals and humans responding to a situation where they feel endangered by looking for a strong leader, a father figure, if you will, um, who's going to defend them. And so to some extent, I think this is why another reason why Mr. Trump was elected for those who felt under threat and wanted the daddy, the big daddy, the big, powerful, fierce, chest pounding daddy, um, as opposed to the nurturing mommy. Now, obviously, this is this is a, an exaggerated perspective, but the appeal that many right-wing populist leaders have demonstrated around the world, I think, is an example of exactly that. Well, there there is a lot of interesting things there because, of course, the the mommy party would seem to be the more nurturing, the more collective voice. Uh, you know, Biden. You know, his cabinet will probably be quite important to voters based on, you know, his advanced age if he's elected. Uh, Trump seems to be, you know, very much about himself. There was a killer statistic that of the seven people who got more than 10 minutes of speaking time at the Republican convention, four of the seven were, you know, Trump and members of his family. So very, very, very family oriented. Speaking of the moment we're in and, and feeling besieged and how voters can respond between the, the mommy and the daddy model. Uh, you do go into things in terms of what's going on with that sense of besiegement, uh, economic, social, uh, medical these days. That wasn't in the book at the time it was written, but demographically, intellectually, even theologically. I mean, those are a lot of ways in which people who might be inclined to support Trump uh, will feel besieged. How do um, you know how, how are they going to stack up with that? What are those ways in which they feel besieged that, that Biden can actually speak to? Well, I think there are a number of them. Um, certainly the issue of civil unrest. Um, now, once again, there's the daddy party versus the mommy party. The daddy party claims they, you know, exaggerates the degree of unrest and wants to punish them. 
the mommy party wants to look and again, I shouldn't really say mommy party, but the Democratic Party and Mr. Biden sure. really want to look at what what are the underlying causes? What's going on here? What can we do to make this less likely to happen in the future? Not necessarily simply what can we do to make to to, to arrange that there will be fewer protests as such, but rather to make sure that there's fewer reasons for protest. And so try to go more to the heart of the problem rather than looking at the um, the superficial manifestation, which many people find itself threatening. Um, l- l- let me give you an example here, Dan, that I think is uh, not exactly the same, but close. Uh, the issue of guns, the American gun culture. Yep. If you look at, you know, historically, people who had guns in the United States up until really quite recently did so for two, had them for two reasons one was hunting and the other was as a for um, uh, for target practice um, within the last 25 years or 30 years that's really switched and people who have guns now overwhelmingly claim they want them for defense that is to say a response to their perception of threats and here's a perfect example I mean, we saw it with with the, those two individuals outside of St. Louis, I believe it was, who were out waving their guns at protesters, presumably because they felt threatened. Well, if you look at the American response to threats, so many people having guns, and you look at how that has been itself counterproductive, you look at how many people die as a result of guns, whether it's homicide, suicide, or accidents. I think here is a, a classic and really tragic case in which in seeking to respond to feeling threatened, uh, so many people wind up doing things that, in fact, make them yet more threatened, but they don't like to acknowledge that. I mean, there, there, there are overwhelming data, which I describe in the book, that fat homes with guns are far more likely to suffer as a result to experience murder, to experience suicide, to experience accidental deaths, way, way, way more than the number who die as a result of, say, an armed intrusion into the house. And even when there is an armed intrusion in the house, having guns in the house actually makes things worse because the armed intruder is already prepared, already has guns, already knows what's going on. The, The homeowner is nervous, suddenly surprised, maybe can't find the gun or can find it, isn't trained. And the result is more likely to be additional violence and and deaths and injury. So again, guns are just one example, I think, of how uh, so many people responding to what they perceive as threats have actually made things worse. Well, I thought the the, uh, section in the book on guns was particularly striking, although there was many other sections as well. But some of the statistics you offered, I'll just cite one of them, which is that America has about 4% plus of the world's population but over 40% of the world's civilian-owned guns. I mean, that's a striking statistic. Uh, An historical detail you mentioned that I just heard collaborated the other day, that it was the Black Panthers bringing guns into, I believe it was Sacramento, into the state capitol in 1967 that initially triggered uh, conservatives to want more gun control. Uh, But they've, of course, flipped on that issue. It brings me to this question. I mean, I have been struck by now seeing not just the couple in St. Louis, but increasingly instances of right-wing militia, uh, you know, groups, uh, gangs, as it were, uh, out there brandishing weapons. Uh, With all this sense of being under siege, 
how are we going to keep the temperature low, uh, if at all? What from a psychology point of view, and that's your academic training that I'm hoping to bring in here. How can we appeal and reach and and try to soften this situation? I, I confess to being quite concerned as to where the country's at right now. You're talking then about the situation of the, so people, the, the yeah, groups out brandishing guns. Yeah, uh, whether yeah. I mean, and sometimes it's left wing, certainly. But I, I, you know, the ones that I've seen the largest concentration of weapons for uh, have been right wing militias or individuals. I'm thinking about a group that basically stormed the Michigan uh, you know, state capitol building some months ago. I, I've seen some, some other instances from from video and photographs. Well, unfortunately, I'm not aware that the the wisdom of my colleague <laughs> psychologists is, is all that useful in this regard. Um, ah, shoot! <laughs> I would, yeah, pun intended. Would, right. <laughs> well said. I, I missed the pun, but now I got it. Uh, you know, I think again, getting back to the topic of threats, I think one of the things that has happened, and it seems like we can't talk about this without engaging Donald Trump yet again. But one of the things that's happened has been encouraging violence, as appalling as that is. It's really shocking. I don't think we've ever had a president of the United States who actively encouraged violence within the United States. I mean, we certainly had the encouragement of violence when the country is at war. But to encourage violence against other Americans in the absence of something like the Civil War, say, um, this is a novel experience. And seeing Donald Trump as a solution to threats is like seeing gasoline as a solution to a fire. I mean, he has, we start off with people who feel under threats. They feel under siege. Um, And then yet they get not just permission, but actual encouragement to respond to that with violent, with violence. Um, I think, you know, I don't think one needs to be an academic, professionally trained psychologist to say, look, if you want to at least reduce the frequency of some of these actions, one thing you got to do is stop encouraging it. And to to a very large and appalling extent, that's what's been going on. And again, you don't have to have a PhD in psychology. (laughs) Well, it's just common sense, I think. Well, to me, one of the most interesting things I learned about Trump's childhood, because you know, besides Roy Cohn, the other mentor here would really be his father, the real estate developer, who had a mantra that he had the kids listen to over and over, which was be a killer, be a winner. So that notion of killing, you know, whether it's just verbal violence that translates into actual violence, that's pretty deep in the psychological DNA of Trump. But before we run out of time here, I did want to go to another part because the book does move on to international affairs. And a great deal of time is spent on, you know, the threats of, you know, nuclear weapons being used. Uh, this might be an impossible question, but as you look at who's out there and the increased proliferation of these weapons over time, I mean, what countries or what situations do you think we should be most alert to? I mean, who's who's likely to be the most intimidating slash bluffing country out there in the in the jungle of countries? Well, it's hard to say, and that's a that's a, a an important question. And uh, regrettably, again, it's hard to say who is the, the who who should be or what country should be the most concerning, the most uh, what should generate the most anxiety in our part. Of course, historically, it was the Soviet Union. To some extent, now Russia. 
Although uh, I think most people would agree at this point, North Korea is, is a, a greater danger to the United States. And interestingly, um, a, a, a major part of that is threats run amok, essentially. Um, I do spend a lot of time in the book talking about deterrence and the failures of deterrence. Deterrence, of course, is is threat. It says, if you attack me, I'm going to respond in such a manner to destroy you, so you better not attack me in the first place. I mean, that's certainly a a threat, and it's an effort at intimidation. Um, What happened, I think, and still happening to some extent in North Korea, is an effort to deter, an effort on the part of the North Korean government, starting actually with with Kim Jong-un's grandfather and then his father and now himself, to deter the United States, South Korea, Japan, uh, and even to some extent China from attacking them. And this is what resulted in their uh, rapid development of nuclear weapons. Now, they don't have a whole lot, but you don't have to have very many to constitute a danger. Unfortunately, because they've gotten so carried away and so concerned with what they saw as see as defending themselves, they've done so increasingly by the use of threats, threatening a sea of fire and all that. Um, the result being, once again, a case where the, the use of threats has been counterproductive because it's generated yet more anxiety on the part of South Korea, Japan, and the United States Countries that may have had no intent, in fact, I, I think probably really don't have an intent of attacking North Korea. But now, as North Korea has increasingly presented itself, promoted itself as a threatening nuclear-armed country, they've ri- uh, they've risen greatly on our own threat scale. Uh, and and yet again, so we, so yet again, we have an example of the use of threats, in this case by North Korea, being horribly counterproductive. Um, and I I think North Korea is particularly dangerous. It's not the only dangerous country, of course. Um, but one of the things I emphasize really quite strongly in the book is the degree to which deterrence itself, as done by the United States, among other countries, is itself a threat. Not only is it a literal threat, because that's what deterrence involves, a threat. If you attack me, I'll attack you back. Um, But deterrence itself turns out to be horribly counterproductive in that uh, it does a lot more harm, I believe, than good. I don't think it's it's had the uh, uh, positive effect that many people attribute to it. I think it's actually endangered us hugely more as it has endangered the North Koreans right now. Sure. Well, that that leads me to maybe the the last question here, but it's a key question because is when we you know are the victim of a threat uh, in responding, how do we avoid making the situation still worse? What what are the courses of action that uh, allow for progress or greater security for the person threatened? Wow. Well, once you know, so many people say that's a great question when when they're being interviewed, <laughs> right? <laughs> And at the risk of a cliche, man, that's a great question. You know, so much, so much of it does depend on the nature of the threat to which you've you've been exposed. Um, if we're talking about an external threat like uh, global warming, for instance, then although it's very hard to respond appropriately, the answer is mostly practical in, in a variety of ways. 
Um, if the threat is the kind of threat that I talk about largely in the book, which is efforts to influence or intimidate you or us, um, then the first thing to do is to back off a little bit. Count to 10. Take a breath. Before we respond automatically to a threat with a counter threat, the risk is so great then that we will make things worse. We should stop, unless it's at a really immediate threat where we really has to be an immediate response. Um, it's immensely in our interest to slow down a little bit, as I said, take a breath, um, and try to figure what is the best response. And by best, often we have to go beyond our sympathetic nervous system, which says, put up your dukes, you know, do something right away, make it as aggressive as the other guy or following Roy Cohn, hit back 10 times as hard. Because all too often when we do that, we do in fact make things worse. Uh, let me give you a, a, just a very quick example. Actually, Henry sure. Kissinger, who I, who I don't normally uh, admire a great deal, he actually defined what he called the security dilemma, talking here about countries. Um, and that dilemma is, that when countries in pursuit of their own security respond by, as they often do, by building up their military so as to be able to convey a powerful, potent threat uh, against their would-be adversaries, what that winds up doing is threatening those potential adversaries who then respond by building up their military threat. And of course, that generates an ongoing threat, counter-threat response. So your adversaries then feel threatened by you. You did it initially because you felt threatened by them. They built up their capabilities uh, as a way, as a response to that. And then you respond to that buildup. And so where, how this becomes a dilemma, of course, is that in the, in the pursuit of your security, everyone winds up less secure than they would otherwise be. And again, whether you're talking about arms races or literal responses to the bully who says, I'm going to beat you up after school, um, most important thing is to back off a little bit insofar as you can and ask yourself, what is the most effective response I can, I can have? And again, that's going to vary, obviously, with the threat itself. But I think if there's to be a sort of a generalized response, it is to avoid the automatic response. Okay. Well, it seems to me that one thing you want to do is allow the other party to gracefully exit and retain uh, their pride, or at least their you know ability to project that their pride hasn't been dashed in some fashion. That uh, otherwise they might just pummel right at you. I'm, I'm thinking back to childhood myself and some playground incidents. It was it was the person that actually scared me the most. Often was the the kid who wasn't very strong or didn't have a lot of friends, had nothing to lose, and was kind of desperate to show that they were a contender. Those seem to be the ones who lunged after you the most. Um, they were the ones I was, you know, tried to leave plenty of distance for uh, response time. So <laughs> yeah, that's a very important point. Then absolutely is to allow allow a way out. And many of the the, the best uh, world leaders in history have been very aware of that. Uh, winning without appearing to be the overwhelming victor. Yeah. Yeah, that's really what I'm I'm thinking of here. So we're about done with time, but I, I do want to thank you, David, for having been my guest on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode number 22, or else, the use and abuse of threats. 
with my guest, David Barish, the author of Threats, Intimidation, and Its Discontents. To check out other episodes or my books or other activities, including my appearances on other people's podcasts, feel free to visit my company's website at the obligatory three W's, sensorylogic.com. If you got a follow-up question for David, you can email me at dhill at sensorylogic.com. If you've enjoyed the show, please give it a five-star rating or review online. Every little bit of social media support is always welcome. Finally, I like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. So today's <laughs> comes from Frederick Nietzsche, who said as follows, the strongest intimidation, by the way, is the invention of a hereafter with a hell everlasting. On that cheery note, until next time, be kind and stay safe. Thank you.